Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. I'm excited to be here, and I want to thank the eldership of the church and Pastor Mark for giving me the opportunity to speak. It's a, it's a privilege. I don't, I don't take it lightly, it's, and uh, it's with a lot of humility that I do it this morning. I also want to thank uh, Rick Mick, because he set me up. Yes! <laughs> he, said, he said two things. He said, first, everybody complains when the pastor's longer than 20 minutes, so that 40-minute sermon's probably out the door. And the second thing he said, <laughs> the second thing he said is actually right on target, because the Spirit of God is moving today. And it's right in line with the word that God has for us today. So I encourage you, be ready to receive from the Lord today. The title of my message today I want to speak is called Worthy is the Lamb. I've heard it said that worship is worthship. We worship what we deem to be valuable or of significant importance. Well, I'm not sure this first example qualifies as worship. I wonder, have you ever watched an episode or two of Antiques Roadshow? (laughs) Our son Judah loves discovering old things, antiques, odds and ends, things that catch his eye, which are old and interesting. He really likes them. He could spend days looking through aisles and aisles of things like Roger's sale is like, I mean, his mind is blown. Things that he sees value in, things that others might look right past. This is something I love about our son. So sometimes we watch this show together, we watch the drama unfold on the screen. And if you're unfamiliar with the show, the Antiques Roadshow travels from city to city and is a show where people can bring their antiques and have them evaluated for worth by various professionals in varying fields of antiques. So for example, Some grandma from South Texas, rooting through an estate sale, might buy a bracelet for $5, only come to find that it's an actual very valuable piece of American jewelry worth $5,000. Or maybe that family heirloom that was the ugliest picture in the house collecting dust in the basement is brought in and it's determined that it's a rare piece of art from, like, I don't know, some Austrian monk from the 1700s who painted oil on canvas farm scenes, somehow ended up in this basement when suddenly it's determined that there's a treasure there, which until now lay dormant, collecting dust. Now, don't judge my family and I, but we do get some delight and definitely laugh out loud at some of the other folks on the show who are not so fortunate. You know, the converse of the previous examples, the guy who paid $1,000 for that piece of pottery thinking it was Ming-era dynasty pottery, only to find out after showing the experts, they flip it over and there's an Ikea sticker on the bottom. (laughs) It was, in fact, a fake. He had been duped. Or that person that held the family heirloom for years because they were told in family lore that this artifact was of significant American history, only to find out it was a fake, not what they thought it was. But I think the allure of this show is striking because we all want to think that there's a possibility that what we possess may be of extreme value. There's an element of suspense even. What if this item is rare and valuable? This could change my life. I mean, cha-ching, if I get that right item, especially if it costs me nothing. 
The converse is also true, though. There isn't one person who wants to be duped, thinking they have something of value only to be publicly humiliated when they realize they were wrong and the wasted time and energy and resources on what was false. Church, this morning, I want to take a look at what we value the most. More rightly said, who we value the most. Now, make no mistake, we gather in this place today in honor of the one who gave us everything, Jesus. He's the author and the perfecter of our faith. He's the reason we're here. He's the cornerstone. He's the firm foundation. He is the stone that the builders rejected that now is a place of refuge for us. He is the king of kings, and he's the Lord of lords, and he's worthy of all that we can bring him. Yet, while we have this time set apart for him, I believe that Sunday to Sunday liturgical expressions of our faith in word and deed can slowly over time become tarnished in monotony and religiosity. See, if we're not thoughtful or aware of who we're gathering for, we can quickly find ourselves in a rut of mediocrity where simply attending a church service isn't giving us what we're looking for, not spiritually, not emotionally, or otherwise. We can actually feel stuck and disengaged And today, I believe the Holy Spirit wants to reveal to us the worth of Jesus. And it starts with a look at the end. So let's turn to Revelation. See, I love the book of Revelation. If you haven't taken the plunge into the apocalyptic literature of the scriptures, you're in for a wild ride. We're looking at the end times filled with intense imagery and unparalleled victory. If we're honest, though, from a completely natural standpoint, the imagery and the language of the book of Revelation can seem confusing and somewhat strange. The truth is, though, this isn't a scary book or a strange book. The truth is the reality of what we believe in the Spirit is so rich that mere words can't do it justice. And so the Apostle John, the writer of Revelation and the receiver of the Revelation, completely overwhelmed and overtaken by his visions, put into words what he was seeing to the best of his ability. Imagine if you were trying to explain that lunar eclipse that just happened this week. I don't know if anybody, did anybody see that? Or nobody wakes up at three in the morning like me? Okay, well, it was super cool if you didn't see it. Um, total lunar eclipse, the moon was red. But imagine trying to explain that to somebody who is blind. You're trying to capture a moment in time and put it in words that not just expresses what you're seeing descriptively, but also that sense of feeling of awe and wonder. And that would be just to try to explain a lunar eclipse. So let's jump into the book of Revelation and try to get a glimpse of what John is seeing of the worth of Jesus. Now, honestly, I would love to just straight read chapters one through five, but to keep Rick happy, no, no, no. (laughs) We're not gonna read one through five fully. We're gonna look at a bird's eye view of what John is seeing in chapters one through five as he's fully engrossed in visions of heaven. 
recognizing at the same time that John is seeing these things, he's tasked with putting his vision into words so that it can be carried to a specific people and specific churches in his day while also meaning something for us today. So here's some highlights. In the first chapter of Revelation, John sees a vision of Jesus in his glorious splendor. Now bear in mind that the apostle John walked with Jesus and he knows who Jesus is. But here, he's getting a vision, a supernatural vision of the resurrected, of the resurrected Jesus. And listen to this imagery in the first chapter, the 12th verse, it says this. Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white as wool, white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire and his feet were like burnished bronze refined as in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining with full force. What a glorious picture of Jesus. I can only imagine the emotions and the flood of holy fear that John must have experienced in this moment. As a matter of fact, the very next verse, verse 17, says this, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one. I was dead, and see, I am alive forever and ever, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Friends, with a touch... Jesus reveals his eternal victory and his lordship. And there is absolutely no doubt that Jesus is alive and he is on the move. We see in this first chapter, a resurrected Jesus revealed. In chapters two and three, John gets specific messages from Jesus for specific churches in his day, instructing those believers to endure and overcome. These words are powerful, poignant words calling believers to hear and repent. Here's a quick overview of what those churches heard. In Ephesus, they had abandoned their first love and were called to repent and do the works they did at first. In Smyrna, they were about to suffer for their faith, but were called to be faithful unto death. And in doing so, they would receive the crown of life. In Pergamum, they were faithful to Jesus in a dark place but were being led astray by false teachings. The call was to repent and overcome. In Thyatira, they were a working, loving, faithful, serving, and patient church, but they had been tolerating a spirit of Jezebel and were being allured away by sinful living. The call was to repent and turn from sin and hold fast to Jesus until he comes again. In Sardis, they had a name of being alive, but they were dead. The call was to wake up and strengthen what remained. Remember what was received and heard. Obey it and repent. In Philadelphia, Jesus had set before this church an open door, which the scriptures say no one would shut. 
They were faithful with the little that they had and patiently endured. The call was to hold fast to what they had so that no one would seize their crown. And finally, the seventh church in Laodicea, they were neither hot nor cold. They were just lukewarm and about to be spit out. They were rich and lacking nothing and completely unaware that they were wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. The call to this church was to receive the discipline and the love of Jesus and to repent and be spiritually provided for, clothed, and anointed by him. I love these passages because at the end of these passages, it says, let anyone who has an ear hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Imagine if you were one of these churches getting these words straight from the heart of Jesus. How powerful this is. In chapters 2 and 3, we see that Jesus is seeking to purify his bride. He's calling them out, yet he's calling them close to his side. We see that Jesus has a message for his church. Friends, Jesus' call today is the same for us. In Wellsville, repent, endure, overcome, strengthen what remains, stay faithful, we see that something is being built. Something is growing. In the fourth chapter of Revelation, and this is where it really starts getting good, as if it wasn't good enough. John gets another vision. John sees the throne and the one seated on the throne who is receiving worship continually. Listen to this description in the fourth chapter, the second verse. It says this, at once I was in the Spirit, and there in heaven stood a throne with one seated on the throne. And the one seated there looks like Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne there is a rainbow that looks like an emerald. Around the throne are 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones are 24 elders dressed in white robes with golden crowns on their heads. Coming from the throne are flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And in front of the throne burn seven flaming torches, which are the seven spirits of God. And in front of the throne, there is something like a sea of glass, like crystal. Around the throne and on each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with a face like a human face, and the fourth living creature like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and inside. Day and night, without ceasing, they sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the one who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the one who is seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne singing, you are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. What a scene of the throne and of heavenly worship. We get this intense imagery of God the Father and of the Spirit of God as the seven spirits of God. 
Some of the songs we sing in church today speak of this imagery, lightning and thunder, radiant colors, how worthy he is. He is intrinsically and perpetually holy. I had a professor in school that said that that as the creatures surround the throne, the scripture says they're covered with eyes. And as they surround the throne, they just say, holy, holy, holy. And why is it? Why is it that they say holy? Because they're covered with eyes. And every time they come around, they see another perspective of just how holy he is. You see, it's not boring in heaven, church. We need to get out of our minds that it's harps and fiddles and we're sitting on clouds, smacking high fives and playing badminton. That ain't it. Our God is a holy God and he's worthy of what we can give him. And so we see this picture of even the creatures created things have this constant revelation of who he is, holy. The participants in heaven can't help but declare these truths. All around there's glory and radiance. The essence of who God is produces songs and refrains that come from the creatures and the elders. Worthy is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In chapter 5, one of my favorite passages in all the Bible, we see a scroll that's sealed with seven seals in the hand of the one that's seated on the throne that was just described. And an angel is declaring that no one can open this scroll. And John, the apostle, he sees this scene and he begins to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open this scroll. Picking it up in the fifth verse, it says this, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and he took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sing a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slaughtered. And by your blood, you ransomed for God saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests, serving our God, and they will reign on the earth. And then I looked in verse 11, it says, and I heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and they numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, singing with full voice, worthy is the lamb that was slaughtered to receive wealth, power and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them singing to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. We see in this passage, church, Jesus, the lion, of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the lamb that was slain has purchased by his sacrifice saints from every tribe and language and people and nation, and he's made a kingdom of priests serving our God. He was worthy, he is worthy, he will always be worthy. And the final thing I want to look at in Revelation this morning is in chapter 7, verse 9 through 12. It says this, 
After this, I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Robed in white, with palm branches in their hands, they cried in a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne, and to the Lamb. And the angel stood around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, singing, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen and amen. We see here representation from every nation and tribe and language innumerable before the throne in unified adoration of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So this morning, why are we taking the time to look at all this? If indeed our view of Jesus has been somewhat tarnished or belittled by what we go through in life, even as Rick said this morning, so good, our daily grind, then it's absolutely imperative that we remind ourselves of his worth as the scriptures show. Friends, hear me rightly today. The worthiness of Jesus is not predicated or based on my ability to give him worth. Meaning, if I never spoke a word of his worth and of his eternal significance, it would not diminish how he is altogether worthy without me adding to it. He does not need me to attribute worth to him as if he was lacking in some way. See, he's not narcissistic. Rather, listen, church. His perfect work on the cross and glorious resurrection from the dead, one for all eternity, salvation for those who are being saved, who call on his name and repent from dead works to serve the living God. You see, his perfect work on the cross gave you and I the ability to recognize just how valuable and eternally precious he is. I dare say... The revelation of his worth is renewing and revolving and revealing the glorious nature of who he is in relation to that work on the cross. The more I see in Jesus, the more I understand I must give him what he's worthy of, my life and my everything. You see, every time I get that little cup and I take that wafer and I get that juice, every Sunday we partake of this, I'm recognizing that Jesus did his part for me. And I'm also carrying the weight of that new covenant that says it's time for me to do my part for him. Friends, Jesus didn't come to make an organization or a denomination of believers or a 501c3 tax-free entity or a glee club or anything like that. He came to make disciples. He came for a church, a glorious bride who is ready for his coming. And man, I got no problem being the bride of Christ. I'm just going to say that right now. This isn't a male-female thing. This is we are the church. It is a picture in heaven. Don't get it wrong. We are the bride of Christ, and it's glorious. Those who recognize who he is and say, yes, you are worthy, and I will follow after you. I'll follow after your heart. He's looking for those who will deny themselves, taking up their cross, to win for him the rewards of his suffering unto the ends of the earth, and even, as Revelation says, unto death. The question for us today, though, is 
How do we get from this grandiose picture of what we see in Revelation? I mean, this is, this is amazing. Eternity revealed. Nations gathered around the throne of Jesus and the Lamb and the angels and the elders. Glorious splendor to little old you and me in Wellsville today. We've got to bring it home, right? Because it can feel beyond us, even outside of us, or even too big for us. So there's two things we need to understand. First, and this is the best. Of course, everything's the best to me, so this is the best. Let's look at Hebrews, the 12th chapter, the first verse. It says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely. And let us run with perseverance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. The first thing is really simple, guys. You were the joy set before Jesus. Yes, you were his joy. You see, if you were one of the 100 sheep, he would leave the 99 to go after you. If you were that one lost coin, he would turn that house upside down looking for you. If you were the younger prodigal brother that was stuck in the pig, pig pen in muck and in mire, he would be watchful on the horizon looking for your return with a ring and a robe waiting for you to come back. We must understand and know our worth and value to Jesus before we can even think of giving something to him that he's worthy of. Because how can I truly value what Jesus offers me when I find it difficult to see value in myself? There are days I don't even like myself. Maybe some other people feel that way sometimes. Maybe you've been told your whole life by others, by family, friends, that you're useless or worthless, incapable of doing anything worthwhile in life, let alone something good for Jesus. But I have good news today. You are Jesus's joy. You are valuable to him. Now, I thought we'd have a youthful example this morning. We'll go to youth group. Can I have a volunteer? Is there anybody who want to volunteer this morning? Shoot up a hand, shoot up a hand. I'll pick somebody. It won't be mildly embarrassing. Come on. Come on up. Come on. Come on. All the way up. All the way up. I figured this is a little bit youthful, but I have something for you I want to give you. Would you like to have this? Yes. What is it? $20. $20? Okay, she got a $20 bill. Well, why do you want it? Okay, well, you can spend it. So there's some value here, right? So, well, maybe like a gallon of milk, maybe a gallon, <laughs> gallon of... Well, do you still want it? Why? You still want it? Well, but did you say I just stepped on it? I just, you know, it's got some stuff on you. Probably, on, I mean, look at it. It's all messed up now. It's, but it's still what? It's still valuable. Oh, there you go. It's yours. It's yours. All right, somebody else can have it. She's like, I'll take it. She's like, I'll take it. Friends, 
this analogy is going to fall way short because this is just a piece of paper that can hardly buy you anything right now. But there is so much intrinsic worth in your life that it does not matter what has happened to you, where, you, where you've been, how bad you smell. It doesn't matter. There is value in who you are. And Jesus sees that value in you. You see, friends, in these scriptures in chapter 12, it comes right off the hills of an amazing outline of the heroes of the faith in chapter 11. And the author of Hebrews, he's imploring us, if they can do it, we can too. Look at who we're surrounded by. We can look in this room today and see a great cloud of witnesses. Look at what you have done. Look at what I have done. Look at what the myriads of people around that have believed in Jesus have done by simply believing in God, overcoming, winning battles, sacrificing their lives for what they believed in. And now it's our turn. Run the race set before you. Look to Jesus. He started it with you and he's going to finish it with you. In Romans chapter 5, the sixth verse says this. I'm going to prove you just how much he loves you. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might actually dare to die. Verse 8, but God proves his love for us in that while we were sinners, still sinners, Christ died for us. While I was still a sinner, he died for me. He valued me. I was valued even in sin and unrighteousness. In the example with the money, no matter what happened to the bill, she still wanted it because there was value there. Jesus despised the shame of the cross for the joy that was set before him. We just spent time looking at the bigger picture of what God was building in the book of Revelation. And you see, Jesus had this in his mind when he went to the cross. The lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world, receiving the love and the worship from those he has redeemed and sharing that love. Friends, he loves you today. And he sees value in you. You are his joy. Understanding that we bring joy to the heart of Jesus gives us the ability to respond rightly to what we see in him. And the second point this morning is this. You get to respond to that love like only you can. See, we have a tendency to look at one another and then compare ourselves to one another and be like, ooh, I got to do it that way. or I should be doing it that way. It's okay to have examples. But it's also okay to be who God created you to be. In Luke, the seventh chapter... There's an amazing story here. And this passage is one of the most powerful displays of, in the Bible of a woman responding to what she sees in Jesus' love, value, and acceptance. I want to read this quickly to you this morning for context. In verse 36, it says, One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And a woman in the city who was a sinner having learned that he was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet weeping and began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with the ointment. 
Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. And Jesus spoke up and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, he replied, speak. A certain creditor had two debts, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love, but the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is so dynamic. Everything about this interaction grated against the people who were there, except for one man, Jesus. See, everybody, everybody knew she was a sinful woman. She had no right coming into that house. She definitely shouldn't have been approaching Jesus, yet she came. She brought something of value with her that wouldn't have made sense to those who were there. It, might have, it was even wasteful to them but it was an offering to Jesus, an alabaster jar of ointment. You see, she saw something in Jesus that created a response in her that only she could bring. Something that drove her past what was customary or normal or accepted and into the realm of faith and true love and devotion. And as a result, her sins were forgiven. Friends, this morning, when the Spirit of God is speaking to your heart, and you're, you feel that you're being drawn to faith in Jesus, to believe in him, to repent and step out, we must learn to respond to that call. Friends, you get to respond like only you can. He wants you just as you are. We just have to respond. The moment will come where you decide, I don't care who's watching. I don't care who's in attendance. I don't care what it looks like, what people will say or what people will think. Because friends, let me tell you right now, there's always going to be somebody who disapproves. There's always somebody who will disapprove even of one who is sold out. But in that moment, being captivated by the worthy one, it won't matter. Because in that moment, I see that Jesus is who he says he is. And I believe, and I'm coming to bring something to Jesus that he's worthy of. My life. You're going to find life when you lay yours down. Yes. This is a weighty word this morning, church. I have a friend, actually a friend and his wife. Their name's Stephen and Bailey Kurt. If he was here, he'd probably slug me for bringing him up, but that's okay. He's not here, so I'm going to bring him up anyway. They started a ministry called Involved International. And what it is, is it's a ministry they minister in 
East Africa in multiple nations. And they plant churches. They have leadership uh, conferences and summits. And nations in Africa are being directly impacted by this ministry. They have schools and orphanages. And it's an amazing work that they're doing. But I don't bring it up just to speak of that work because that's kind of like looking at the end from the beginning. See, I knew Stephen in college. And Stephen is a man of prayer. And I heard Stephen praying for the nation, for the continent of Africa and the nations in Africa as a young guy in college, crying out for souls and salvation when there was nothing to be seen. He was raised as a missionary kid in Africa. And today, if you look at his ministry, it's like, oh man, I can't believe that. Look at what they're doing. Look at all the amazing things. But you see, friends, he saw something in Jesus Something captured his attention, something captured his devotion, and he said, yes, I'm going to believe that my life is of value to him, and I believe that my life and my calling is staked in Africa, and I'm God, I want you to do something great with my life in the nations of the earth. And today, that's reaping eternal dividends, friends. That's a big thing. But today, friends, this morning, God has placed you and I here in Wellsville as a part of his eternal story. There's a bigger picture, and you're part of it. You bring joy to the heart of Jesus. You have value, and you're called to respond to what you see in him today, like only you can. For worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive the best of what I can bring him. So this morning, as I close and ask the worship team to come up, these altar moments are so precious and right This is the safest place in the room. It's a place of surrender and victory, hope and life. And these moments are for us. This morning, maybe your connection to Jesus is like that dusty family heirloom in the basement I mentioned at the beginning. Your grandma told you it was valuable when you needed it, but you have yet to realize the life-changing life-altering value that Jesus actually brings. You've held on to it because you were raised that way, but you've really never surrendered to him. Today's your day. Maybe you're the one who's been carrying what you thought was real faith, only to find out you've been duped. Maybe punching a spiritual time clock, making eye contact with Pastor Mark. Yep, I'm here. We're good, right? Amen, brother. Good to see you. I'm guilty having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Today, Jesus is calling you not to be who you project to be. He's calling you just as you are. Maybe this morning you're struggling to see the value in yourself. You need to see, you need Jesus to reveal just how valuable you are to him. There are elders and folks in this room today that can pray with you. You see, friends, Jesus sees your future and it looks great with him. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can get a picture of that too. This isn't just church talk and, oh, this is good altar. Man, you, you know how to make it sound good. This is what we believe. This is spirit and life today. Finally, maybe you're in the seat of the one who refuses to be duped. You just can't believe it. It's too radical. The price is too steep for what the trade-off is. But today, friends, Jesus is calling you to turn from sin. You know what it is. The Holy Spirit is great at shining the spotlight on what doesn't belong there. 
It's time to see your worth in Jesus and give him what he's worthy of, your life. He despised the cross, the shame of the cross to know you intimately. It's time to give him what he's worthy of. If you don't fit any of those things today, there's one thing we can all do in this room today. It's to give the one who is worthy, the one who is seated on the throne, who was, who is, and who is to come, the worship and the adoration that he's worthy of. A song of love from our hearts. So this morning, whatever you find yourself in, let's stand together and sing, but I invite you this morning, respond like only you can.